0: the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And then, turning over to John 17, at the conclusion, near the end of Jesus' prayer, in verse 22, Jesus is praying, and he says, the glory that you, the Father, have given me, May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Yesterday was my father's birthday, and if he were still alive, he would have been 88. And the family all remembers what he accounts as the most memorable birthday celebration and experience of his life. He writes about it in his book on World War II, of his vivid remembrance of his 20th birthday Spent in a farm complex near the town of Pierre, Germany, which is situated on the west bank of the Rohr River, a quaint little farm compound with a brick wall around it and the buildings of the farm constituting some of the enclosure as well with a big farmhouse, but his squad took a position in a brief interlude that they had of a few days in the barn of that farmhouse and farm complex. And they cared for the, the horses, the two horses there, a mother and her colt. The mother was injured with shrapnel in her body, but she was okay. And there was a dog, and there were some chickens as well, so they were able to get some eggs. And they managed even to have a little Christmas Celebration there. It was just a few days before the Battle of the Bulge would break out and they would be moved to enter into that battle as well. But he was able to celebrate his birthday and Christmas both in what he says turned out to be his most pleasant interlude of the war. We might say there was always a touch of glory in my father's remembrance of that birthday. Here in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 the Apostle John is introducing us to the person of Jesus Christ. John is about to launch into his full gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But he sets the stage by telling us that Jesus Christ, come in the flesh, is the revelation of the glory of God, a glory that certainly far surpasses any earthly glory such as a birthday in Germany. I want us to consider this evening what John tells us about the glory of Christ. What do we learn about Jesus coming to reveal the glory of God? First of all, let us learn that when Jesus Christ came in the flesh, the glory of God was revealed in a new way. When Jesus came, the glory of God was revealed in a new way, never before seen. Verse 14 of John 1 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying that Jesus Christ, in His very person and in His work, the life that He lived, what He taught, how He showed the love of God, how he lived in accordance with the law of God, how he went with resolute determination to the cross, how he died and suffered and rose again. The life and the ministry and the work and the person of Jesus Christ, John is saying, reveals the glory of God. It's very likely that the Apostle John had Exodus 33 and 34 in view, as he speaks of the glory of Christ being revealed in this new way. If you remember in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses and the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 33 at verse 18, Moses said to the Lord, "'Please show me your glory.'" And the Lord said, "'I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord.'" And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then in chapter 34, in verses 6 and 7, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and so on. Moses was, in a sense, allowed to see the afterglow of the glory of God, or the back of God, we might say. We know that no man, Scripture declares, can see God and live. But Moses was given this special privilege to see, in some sense, the glory of God. And that verse that describes the fact that uh, the Lord passed by and it says that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, most likely that sense, Abounding in love and faithfulness corresponds to this phrase in John 1 that Jesus was full, abounding in grace or love and truth or another way to speak about faithfulness, the truth of God, the faithfulness of God. No doubt, John had that in his mind to some degree. And Jesus was full of grace and truth, he was abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing the goodness of God, showing the very character of God himself because he was God. Jesus revealed the glory of the Father. And you see this theme as John's gospel unfolds. I'm not going to trace all of it, but if you turn over to John chapter 2:11, after the very first miracle which Jesus performed, the miracle of turning water into wine. John remarks on it in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And now notice the next phrase. And manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There's this theme that comes out throughout the Gospel of John as Jesus does the miraculous signs. These signs are evidences of the glory of God. He is revealing the glory of God. One more, I'll look at in John 11 when Lazarus dies. And in John 11, verse 4, when Jesus and the disciples hear about the fact that Lazarus is sick, uh, verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words Jesus is saying the disciples didn't understand it at the time but he was saying the son of man is going to be glorified through this miraculous sign when i raise Lazarus from the dead and then at the near the conclusion of that in verse 40 of John 11 Jesus said to her did i not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of god we could look at other Verses in John's gospel that have this theme of the glory of God revealed in Jesus, revealed in his miraculous signs, but then the glory of God was supremely revealed in the death and resurrection of Christ. There are many references to that as well, but just for example, in John 12, verse 23, we see Jesus speak about his upcoming death, and Jesus answered them. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man To be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, speaking of his death, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There was this sense in which, when Jesus became man, the glory of God was revealed in a new sense. There's one more way that the prologue of John's Gospel emphasizes this. We see in verse 15 of John 1 that there's a parenthesis about John the Baptist bearing witness to Christ, but in verse 16, John goes on to say, and from his Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, the translation there is the typical translation, and that may be correct. It's the little preposition in Greek that usually means instead of. So instead of grace upon grace... It would normally be translated grace instead of grace, but commentators debate what that means. Many of the best commentators, though, say that the real sense is grace instead of grace. And the idea here is what's further elaborated on in verse 17, which explains verse 16. It says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the sense here is that The glory of Christ, this new revelation of the glory of God, surpasses the revelation of the glory of God's grace in the Old Testament. Not that there wasn't grace there, there was, but the sense here is grace instead of grace, or one grace replacing, in a fuller sense, another grace. The law itself, Moses and the law, was itself an earlier display of grace, of the glory of God. The law was gracious. It was glorious. But it's been, in a sense, replaced. It's been surpassed. And if we turn to Second Corinthians, we see this whole idea being described. In 2 Corinthians 3 at verse 7, it says, Now if the ministry of death, which is talking about the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So Paul is saying, if the ministry of Moses and the law being given brought glory, so much so that when Moses came down from the mountain, the Israelites couldn't look at his face. It was so glorious. He veiled his face. Verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Now, we're not going to go into each verse of that, but the overall effect I want you to see. Paul is speaking about the glory of the old Covenant, which was a gracious one, but it's been surpassed. Jesus reveals the glory of God in a way never before seen in history. Now stop and just reflect on this. We might have many ways that we would say that glory is revealed. We know that in creation, the glory of God is revealed. It's glorious. You might think of a a bright and dazzling Morning, when it snowed the night before and there's ice on all the trees, and you go outside and it's just glorious. Or if you're out in a majestic mountain range area and you see great mountains and the hills leading up to them, we know that's a glorious sight. Or a beautiful sunrise over the ocean, and you see the sun rise with all the colors of a beautiful sunrise. And Romans 1, in fact, says that. The glory of God is revealed in creation, and it makes us all without excuse before God. We ought to worship Him, but Romans 1 says we've, we've worshiped other things. We've worshiped and served the creation instead of the Creator. But the creation does show glory. It's a glory that's surpassed, though, by the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's glory in human beings, we might even say. Human beings are part of God's good creation. We might say they're the apex of the creation of God. They're the highlight of it. We had a wedding here yesterday, and as the bride and her father walked down the aisle, you can bet the bridegroom standing there thought this was glorious. You know, it was the best day of his life, I would say. Or we look at a great athlete and his or her performance, and think of the human body at its peak, and we say that's glorious, or a brilliant mind, or a gifted musician. But nothing compares to the glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ. In fact, the verse that I read earlier at the beginning of the service, Hebrews 1, in verse 3, says, he, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so... My first point is simply this. When Jesus came in the flesh, he came to reveal the glory of God. Scripture is full of that theme. The glory of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. Well, why doesn't everyone see that? This brings us to our second point. Seeing the glory of Jesus Christ is at the heart of becoming a Christian. Seeing the glory of Jesus Christ is at the heart of becoming a Christian. We don't normally speak of conversion in these terms. We usually speak about repentance and faith, turning to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and those are all very typical New Testament terms to speak about conversion. But conversion is also described in terms of coming to truly see with the eye of your heart the glory of Jesus Christ. Coming to see that Jesus is the divine Son of God, full of grace and truth. The only God who is at the Father's side. In John 1, verse 14, the Apostle John says, And we have seen his glory. Now, the we there most likely refers to the Apostle John, the other apostles, in fact, all the disciples who were eyewitnesses of the earthly life and ministry of Christ. John is speaking that editorial kind of we. And he includes at verse 15, John the Baptist's testimony as well. And he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's interesting how the apostle John emphasizes John the Baptist's testimony at this point. It's probably because In a culture, in a society of ancient, the ancient Near East, in that culture, age and precedence, in other words, someone who came before someone else, bestowed peculiar honor and glory. So that people might have assumed that since John the Baptist came first and John the Baptist's ministry was first, he must have uh, been greater than Jesus, he must have had more glory. The apostle John is saying, "No, John the Baptist denied this. John the Baptist says, "He who comes after me, Jesus Christ, ranks before me because he was before me." John is alluding to the preexistence of Christ. He was before me. He was the pre-incarnate glorious God. So John and the other disciples saw his glory, the divine glory of Jesus Christ. That was actually we would say, part of their conversion experience. Seeing Jesus Christ for who he really is, that's part and parcel with true conversion for each one of us, for anyone who comes to trust in Christ. It involves seeing who Jesus really is. It's necessary in order to be a true Christian. You see, and it comes out in John's gospel and the other gospels as well, during The earthly ministry and life of Jesus, there is a sense in which the divine glory was hidden. It was veiled. It's not like Jesus walked around with a halo over his head or light emanating from him. That's not the case. He was human in the sense that nothing showed up in that sense, except for on the Mount of Transfiguration, of course, when it did show up. But yet the glory was there, It was there to the eye of those who had eyes of the heart to see it. The divine glory was not perceived by everyone. In fact, it was missed by a lot of folks. You had to have your mind opened or enlightened by the Holy Spirit to see the glory of Christ. Jesus repeatedly warned about this and talked about the danger of spiritual blindness. For example, in Matthew 13, 13, he he talks about seeing they do not see. How how do you see but not see? He's saying you can see with the physical eye but not see with the eye of your heart. The prophets speak that way. The Apostle Paul speaks about that. The problem is not with Jesus and his clear revelation of God's glory. The problem is, is with the hearts of people. Psalm 135 speaks about this when it talks about idols and people making idols that have eyes but they do not see, ears that they do not hear. And it goes on to say that those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So the point here about blindness in Psalm 135 is that you can have eyes but not see and ears but not hear and idolatry is spiritual blindness. You don't hear and perceive and see the things that are important. The point is, the things that we desire, the things that we make our idols, our gods, the thing that, things that hold our highest affection, the things that we daydream about, those are our idols, and they blind us to the glory of Christ so that the danger is having eyes but they're so enamored with other things you miss the glory of Jesus Christ. So conversion is really the gift of spiritual sight granted by the Holy Spirit so that for the first time we truly see Jesus Christ for who he is. He is the Lord of all. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God. He is the glory of God revealed. I was raised in the church and Sang all the hymns and heard all the Bible stories. I was in the Christmas, you know, play every year. And I knew all about the Christmas story. But until I came to be converted at age 19, I didn't see the glory of Christ. I had eyes, but I did not see. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 Excuse me, chapter 4 speaks about this. Let me start in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see how Paul speaks about blindness and unbelief in terms of not seeing the glory of Christ? Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a summary of what conversion is. To have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ flood our hearts and our souls and our minds. That's conversion. We think of uh, the Apostle Paul writing this. He experienced this. if If you heard the sermon on the book of Acts a few weeks ago, Paul, who was originally Saul, knew all about Jesus Christ. But he was blind to who Jesus Christ was until the Damascus Road experience. And then he had a completely different view. And so when we think about this second point, we think, and I ask you, have you ever had the experience of seeing something for years and then coming to see it in a whole new way? This could happen with a man and a woman falling in love, couldn't it? Maybe if you're raised with a a girl or a guy in the youth group, I think of the movie Anne of Green*. Gables. Our family used to watch that when our kids were young, and the star of the movie Anne grows up going to along going to school with this young man Gilbert Blythe, but she only sees him as a friend, and he asks her to marry him, but. She's not interested. She wants to go off and make her way in the world. And it's only after she goes away and experiences more of life that she finally, in this climactic moment, I'm giving the movie away here, sorry about that, but it's a pretty old one. She goes through this fundamental change in how she sees Gilbert Blythe. And she's known him all her life, but now she sees him with new eyes. Maybe we could compare the change to a child practicing an instrument Some of you practice piano or flute or something like that. And maybe you do it as a child mostly because your parents make you do it, right? So you do it. Maybe there's some perks to it as well. I don't know. Maybe they offer the carrot as well as the stick. But then at some point, maybe if uh, you keep on doing it, at some point, maybe in high school, maybe at some point, you come to this this realization that you like it. You have this joy in playing, and maybe you'll play the instrument the rest of your life. You're looking at it in a completely new way. Well, those are all weak illustrations of having an experience of seeing Jesus Christ with new eyes. That's what conversion is all about. You might have memorized the Christmas story. You might know all the carols, but coming to Jesus Christ means that now you see him with the eye of faith and you adore him, you love him, you trust him. Have you come to know Jesus Christ? Have you come to see the glory of Christ? Well, that brings me to my third point. Continuing to see Jesus Christ is how we grow in the Christian life. Continuing to see Jesus Christ is how we grow in the Christian life. Again, that's not the normal way that we talk and think about sanctification. But look at Second Corinthians three eighteen, and we with all with unveiled face. In other words, Paul's been describing how the Israelites' eyes and their faces were veiled, being blind to the glory of Christ. We all with unveiled face; the veil's lifted now that we've come to Christ. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Isn't that a tremendous description of how transformation takes place? We with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. One of the central elements of the Christian's progressive transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ is seeing our continual beholding Jesus Christ through the eye of faith. I read from the end of John 17 at the beginning. Why is it at the end of his high priestly prayer, why does Jesus conclude with the prayer that the the disciples would see his glory? Isn't that interesting? Piper answers it this way. The answer is not hard. This will satisfy our hearts and glorify his worth. In other words, seeing the glory of Christ will satisfy our hearts and glorify Jesus Christ's worth he goes on to say, that that is what it means to be loved by Christ. He prays for what is eternally satisfying to us and eternally glorifying to him. Seeing his glory forever is the greatest gift he can give to us. Therefore, praying and dying that we might have this gift is love. Jesus was, was praying for his disciples and dying on the cross that we might have this gift of seeing his glory. And so, Piper concludes, resolving to fight with all our might that, that we might see what he died to show, that is a great honor to Christ. And he goes on to say, this is the way we grow in Christ likeness, beholding the glory of Christ. Jonathan Edwards says that this seeing of Jesus with the eyes of the heart is a spiritual perception of the truth and beauty and worth of Christ for what they really are. Seeing Christ's beauty, seeing the truth of Christ, seeing the worth of Christ. Edwards writes, it is a true sense of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the word of God and a conviction of the truth and reality of them, thence arising. In other words, he's saying there's this sense, there's this conviction. It is more than a mere rational belief or just an intellectual giving assent. It's more than standing up and saying the Apostles' Creed just with your mind and not having any sense of it in your heart, any conviction of it. It's this conviction, a sense of the gloriousness of Christ in our hearts, a spiritual perception that is always linked to growing in trust in Christ and love for Christ and obedience to Christ. Do you see how that enlarges and how that changes how we look at sanctification, how we look at the daily struggle with temptation in all of our lives. Transformation does not occur without beholding Jesus Christ, without seeing him afresh with the eye of faith, embracing him, calling on him, believing the promises of his word for his presence, his help, his aid. That's all linked together with beholding Jesus Christ and his glory. And so when we think about our sanctification this week, do you need help to love your wife or respect your husband? Singles, do you need help living faithfully before the Lord in this world? Children, do you need help obeying your parents? Do we need help loving those who are difficult to love? or forgiving others, or putting aside temptation and pride and lust and envy and self-seeking and all the other sins that beset us? Do we need help with that? You see, nothing in our hearts really changes without seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, without Understanding with the eyes of our heart who he is as he's revealed in the word and as that it brought to our hearts with conviction by the power of the Spirit as we trust in him afresh, as we look to him afresh with our eyes open to the glory of Jesus day by day. And so seeing Jesus with the eye of faith is how we come to Christ and it's how we walk with Christ day after day. We may have many experiences of glory in this life in a lesser way. In 1987, 43 years after his 20th birthday, my dad and my mom visited Pierre, Germany. Took photos of it, you know, came home with a great slideshow and we all saw it and, and understood that. And that memory about that 20th birthday was riveted in my dad's mind for the rest of his life and we all shared that glory, so to speak. But none of these earthly experiences have the power to transform us into the likeness of Christ. It's only seeing the glory of Christ with the eye of faith. May you see Jesus Christ tonight. And if you've never seen him before, may you fall on your knees before him and say, Lord, open my eyes to the glory of the incarnate Jesus Christ. May you trust in his name. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the glory of Jesus come in the flesh. We can't enough lift our hearts to praise you. We can't enough submit our minds and our lives to you. We thank you that it's a free gift. We thank you that he came when we were unlovable, when we were yet enemies of God. Thank you for such a display of God's grace in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would change us because of that as we look to him. We ask it in his name. Amen.